And I think it lays a different roadmap for how we consider improvements to the bulletin. Who are those improvements for? And what are they helping them with? This is Anne St. Clair, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Kayla Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome to spring, everybody. Hope you're enjoying these longer days. Maybe you're transitioning into a nice corn cycle wherever you are. Of course, watching out for your wet avalanche issues. Um, and hopefully timing timing your adventures into the mountains accordingly. Hopefully you're having nice dual sport days, or at least having nice barbecues out in the sun in the afternoon, whatever you're doing. I'm sure you're doing it to the fullest. We are still cranking away quite a few episodes to come for the fifth podcast season of the Avalanche Hour podcast, and we have quite a few... Uh, additions to the lineup from different contributors so I hope you're enjoying some of the different voices on the podcast feel free to send us some feedback let us know if you're what you're liking what you have for suggestions for the future and if you would like to contribute to the avalanche hour podcast um, if you want to be a guest host if you have an idea for an interview reach out. Send us an email at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to be a guest host, send me send me some audio recording of your involvement in the Snow and Avalanche community and why you would want to be involved in the Avalanche Hour podcast. We'll see what we can do to work you into the schedule for next year. Today's episode is going to feature an interview I conducted with Anne St. Clair. It's a great interview where we talk about Anne's background and history and her work as a forecaster for Avalanche Canada, um, an advisor and educator for ARI, as well as the some of the research, some of the great research that she's done to help figure out how we can be more effective in creating avalanche advisories, avalanche bulletins, avalanche forecasts for all sorts of different types of users of the backcountry. Um, so that we make sure that we can get the the best information to the most people. So um, I know you're going to enjoy this episode with Anne St. Clair. Here we go. St. Clair, thanks for sitting down with me this morning. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Where are you calling from? And describe describe what the weather's doing where you are. 
I am calling from rainy, cloudy Revelstoke, BC. All right. And I should add that this is, you know, the the last week in November here. So is there any snow on the ground up in Revy? We're getting off to an exciting start to the season, this La Nina winter we have in store for us. So really looking forward to how things will stack up. All right. Yeah, I think we all are. Um, well, we're excited to get you on the podcast today. Anne St. Clair is a practitioner, a researcher, an educator, and an avalanche forecaster. Um, she spends some time on either side of the United States-Canadian border. Um, we're hoping to find a little bit more about your background, Anne, and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, when I think back on my path to where I am now, I can find um, some points where seeds were planted. And I grew up on the East Coast. We moved around quite a bit, and I went to high school in Pittsburgh. So that's where I'll say I'm from. But I was part of a really special family tradition um, where we spent time every year with my six cousins and my aunt and uncle um, who resided next to Loon Mountain in New Hampshire. And so my family would spend a week there um, every year that I grew up skiing, uh, playing card games, big family dinners. And my cousins were on patrol. There were great patrol parties where I wasn't allowed to eat the jello, And um, it really just showed me this way of life that involved a relationship with the mountain environment, a tight-knit community, and a lot of time with family. And I think it really planted a seed for me to find that later um, for myself. And um, the next seed I think that was planted for me was in my undergraduate studies. Um, I majored in anthropology and sociology and I got really excited about some of the research questions and the challenges in answering them um, in terms of how people understand and respond to their environments. But at that stage in my life, I just really didn't know how I wanted to apply those questions. Um, and so I migrated west. I ended up in Breckenridge, Colorado, and I spent the next decade plus uh, back and forth between Breckenridge, Colorado, and Moab, Utah. I worked as a multi-day mountain bike guide um, based out of Moab, and I progressed from a recreationist in the backcountry through to a professional role um, within the avalanche community. And I think for me, along that path, there were some seeds planted. I distinctly remember in my recreational level two course being introduced to the yellow flags um, system of identifying problem layers within a snow pit profile. And I just thought that tool was so interesting. And I had all these questions about how it was designed and how it works with how we think and understand instability and make decisions. So I think in that moment, uh, my interest was piqued. And 
I wanted to spend more time with those tools and get familiar with them and how they work. Um, but for me, I really needed a push to see myself within the professional world. And I got that from a good friend of mine, Kirsten Nelson, who was managing the backcountry babes at the time in Breckenridge, Colorado. And she recognized that I had years of guiding experience on the mountain bike and wilderness medical training and avalanche course certificates and years of backcountry experience. So she really pushed me to um, serve the backcountry babes community and pursue and consider leadership um, because we're we're really lacking in terms of getting women into these leadership roles. And, and she encouraged me to pursue that path. And it was really key for me because it uh, made me feel like I would be useful and needed in that community. So it, it was um, helpful for me to get that push to do it. Um, and so from there, I began teaching avalanche courses. I was working as a ski guide for several operations. And it was during um, my airy professional training course that I revisited the research link. I had a fantastic experience in that course with Colin Zacharias as an instructor. And he really um, highlighted for me through his presentations the link between practitioners and researchers throughout our industry's development. So he could identify, you know, when an idea took form within heli ski operations and then how that would, was researched and then where our standard practices then um, stemmed from. And so it sent this message to me that research was really valuable in our industry and he ended the course by highlighting the fact that the behavioral side of research was really in its infancy, and that was an area that we really needed to focus on and invest in in the future. And so um, I got really excited to consider how I could merge my academic background with a research contribution to our industry as well. And so now I'm, um, I just wrapped up a master's degree with the Simon Fraser University Avalanche Research Program, which brought me here to Canada. Um, and I have begun working with Avalanche Canada as a public forecaster. And I'm still continuing my involvement with ARI on the recreational education side of things as an instructor trainer. So helping area instructors to hone their craft. I'm excited to hear more about your research, but it, that, that seems like such a great progression um, from, from a recreational backcountry user into the professional realm, um, both in the practitioner role and the researcher role. Um, and I'm excited to hear a little bit more about what your master's research was all about. Yeah, um, it was a really exciting research experience, and I got to work with a brilliant team of collaborators. So 
my supervisor, Pascal Hagley, um, my colleague, Henry Finn, who was equally a part of every step of the way, did an enormous amount of work with me. Um, Robin Gregory, an esteemed decision researcher in the field. And we were so lucky to have um, Carl Clausen, who works as the warning service manager at Avalanche Canada, really bring us this question. Um, he was curious how the bulletin could be more effective for public users. And as we started to engage with this question, we realized this was an enormous task <laughs> to figure out. And I was really given the task of taking the first crack at it. And so what we did was look at how researchers of risk communication effectiveness for other natural hazards had kind of approached this enormous question. And what they recommended we do was to sit down with people and have an in-depth conversation about how they understand the risks and what they do with the tools and messages um, to really get a sense of the landscape of the audience. And so that was how I took the first crack at it. Um, for my project, we designed an hour-long interview and we reached out to the broadest range of users that we could. We were really lucky that we were based in Vancouver because this allowed us to interview people, you know, that reside downtown in Vancouver. Um, we conducted interviews up in Whistler and with residents of smaller communities like Pemberton. Um, we had a wide range in users' age within our sample. We had 40% women and 60% men in our sample. And we were able to capture users who part, um, participated in different activities like snowshoeing, ice climbing, snowmobiling, and skiing and snowboarding, of course. Um, so it was a really diverse sample. And what was most key was we made sure to capture people who were quite new to the backcountry and might not be very familiar with the products or the tools, as well as our most committed users who are using our products in depth um, and regularly. So um, we conducted 46 of these interviews, uh, and the goal was to look for patterns in how people were using our avalanche forecasts to inform their risk management decisions for their backcountry trips. So that was the objective. And within the results, I found five different patterns of use that I classified into a typology. So uh, the end result is this typology of users, uh, which I labeled to help me remember um, the five types. I labeled them A, B, C, D, and E. And each one of those letters corresponds with a short description of what they're doing. And so with the type A's, they are absent um, and they're not really using our products. Um, and with the type 
Bs, they're making um, a decision based on the danger rating. And that decision is typically a binary go or no-go decision, whether to take that backcountry trip or not. Our type C users are able to combine um, the danger rating with knowledge of avalanche terrain severity. So they're really using the danger rating as a threshold. Um, and so depending on the user, you know, for low or maybe moderate avalanche danger, they will consider any trip. Um, but as the danger increases to considerable or high, they might decide to still go out, but to avoid areas um, of avalanche terrain and stay in flat, mellow terrain. And so type Ds are the first type that are looking more in depth in incorporating the avalanche problem information. So their moniker is that they can distinguish the nature and distribution of the hazard for the day. And so they're opening and closing terrain based on where the hazard exists. Um, and then our type E users are using the avalanche forecast as a starting point. And then they're able to go out into the environment, the slopes where they're traveling, and use the forecast to confirm or disconfirm um, the conditions based on what they see in a localized assessment. And so with these five types, um, what we see is a progression in stages where each user type kind of builds on the process of the one before it. And we call these a stage theory. And what researchers of stage theories suggest that we do is look for the explanations for each stage and what is required to transition to the next. And what was really exciting with this research was that we found a strong link to a stage theory in the field of education. Um, so there's a taxonomy that's widely known the solo taxonomy identified by Biggs and Collis, which is a structure of observed learning outcomes. So within this structure, they identified different stages of learning quality. And at the first stage, users miss the point. At the next two stages, they're able to identify either a single element um, that applies to the context or combine elements that apply to the context. And at the final two stages, they're able to understand a system and it's how its elements relate to each other. At the final stage, they're able to extend that knowledge to a new environment. And what we see in this stage theory is that it maps on to what we found in the typology almost exactly. And it explains how people advance. And so within the first three stages, people need to know more and learn more elements. So it's kind of a quantitative increase in knowledge that's required for those stages. And then the last two stages, 
it's actually a qualitative restructuring of the information. And people really need to deepen their understanding in these stages. Um, and so that was really exciting to kind of find that explanatory framework for this stage theory. And what it really comes down to is the learning quality and that learning is really central to where people stand um, within this progression and what helps them to advance. And it seems like that's some great research that you all are doing. Um, have you drawn any conclusions as to the proportion of different user types within that typology? Yes, that is a very logical next step. That's the question, right? Is who makes up our audience in what proportion? And that was why we wanted to go next to a large scale survey to answer that. We certainly saw some indications within the interview data set um, that suggested that potentially users higher on the scale, like type Ds and Es, were more apt to be skiers and snowboarders, um, whereas users at the more entry level were typically um, more apt to be snowshoers or ice climbers or snowmobilers, but we, we don't have conclusive evidence for that within this first phase. So we designed this large-scale survey, and this was the work of my colleague, Henry Finn. Um, some really exciting data came in within his study. He had um, over 3,000 respondents from both Canada and the U.S., to really dig into that exact question, like who are the type A's, B's, C's, D's, and E's, and what skills do they have um, with the tools? Could we help them fill in any gaps um, that they might have that we're not aware of? So I can't speak too well to the details of his analysis. Um, it was brilliant <laughs> and complex. But what I can say is that some of those same patterns also emerged within his data set. What was really exciting um, in an optimistic manner was that the key um, factor that explained which type of user you are was emerged as avalanche education which is a really important finding because it's showing that education is really effective and impactful for how people can use avalanche forecast information to inform their decisions. And so I think it's telling us that what we do as educators is really important and it works and um, that we need to consider how it can work for everyone that's out in the backcountry. And it seems like you're painting the picture for me at least, or th this is how I'm seeing the picture, is 
is that you know the avalanche forecast has a ton, ton of potential in it and and different types of people depending on where they are on the spectrum of experience and education tend to gravitate to certain things within that forecast to kind of hold on to right to help them make better decisions but there is this upper end echelon of of like the full potential of the avalanche forecast right and so what are some ways that you see as a forecaster that you can better engage somebody on the lower end of that spectrum of typology yeah yeah this is a great question because these are the directions we need to move in is to think about the whole of our audience and how our products serve them. And um, I don't have a lot of answers here except to agree with you that this is an exciting next step. Um, And I think it lays a different roadmap for how we consider improvements to the bulletin. Who are those improvements for and what are they helping them with? Um, it just gives us a little more direction to to ask and answer those questions. Yeah, like it, it gets me going to, to start thinking about what are some of those other user groups out there that we don't even think of that are maybe utilizing the avalanche bulletin or not utilizing the avalanche bulletin but could be if it was relevant to what they're doing maybe just taking a walk or you know not even being aware that people are in avalanche train any thoughts on that well yeah i thought the type that piqued my interest a lot actually was the type a user group um You know, I think my assumption going into the research was that people who don't use the avalanche forecast are probably just unaware that it exists. Like it was a problem of awareness. But I think what you just touched on was that what we found in the analysis was it's also, it is a problem of awareness for some people, but also among those type A's, it's an issue of relevance, like you just said. And so some of the comments that came out in the analysis were that for different activity types, people would express that they didn't see the forecast products as relevant to what they're doing. Um, and that, I think, is is something we need to pay attention to and to reflect on and um yeah, and ask that question of why that is and what are people doing and how are our products helping them with their risk management in their context. Mm-hmm. These entry-level users, are type not just type A's, but also type B's and C's who are just using the danger rating, um, it, it really highlights the breadth of our users and the many different ways you can engage with the backcountry. Um, so these are our folks that might just be, you know, snowshoeing with their dog or, you know, meeting up with their girlfriends with, you know, toddlers in a backpack. 
There's folks that do their, their one hut trip a year. And there are a lot of people out there who want information to help them make their decisions for what they're doing, but they have busy lives and they are, you know, engaged with multiple jobs, families, lots of commitments. Um, and we're in a stressful time in our world. So for a lot of people, their backcountry recreation is is to kind of escape and, and simplify and to clear their heads. And so they're really trying to keep it simple and to be far and away from avalanche hazard and just want that confirmation that they're doing the right thing. And so I, I really like thinking about uh, what those users need to do what they're doing. And, and I think some of the research that's coming out, uh, some of the work that, for example, Grant Statham is working on and my colleague John Sykes at the SFU Avalanche Research Program that I'm involved with, um, they're looking at this updated version of terrain mapping and including a class of explicitly non-avalanche terrain. And so when I think about those users and what they're trying to do and accomplish in the backcountry, I see these tools like the new terrain mapping as a potential um, effective match for the types of decisions people are trying to make um, at their skill level and what we can give them to help them make them. And that is really, you know, my own ponderings. None of that is has been explicitly studied, but I think it's an exciting direction for us to move in terms of identifying what people need and how we can meet that. And so a point there is is not just to see avalanche forecasts as the as solely responsible for meeting all of these needs for everyone, but I really think what this research has shown me is that the system is very integrated. We've seen how instrumental avalanche education can be. Um, we're thinking about how that merges with understanding avalanche forecasts. Um, and so all of these channels, social media, uh, awareness, evening programs, um, avalanche courses, forecasts, all the things that we provide people. We have an increasing number of tools going online this season. And so I think it's really important for us to understand how who these tools work for, how they progress, and really how they could be integrated and outlined more explicitly for people who are just getting into this and um, for people who are looking to progress along the continuum to get where they want to go, which might not be that one-time hut trip a season, but like a library of dream lines that they want to eventually get to in their backcountry ski career. So kind of matching tools with users along the progression so people can see themselves and satisfy um, their needs with our integrated system of tools and products. 
and are you able to visualize yourself along this progression and and it seems like you've probably utilized some reflection of your own career as to uh, deepen your understanding of of the spectrum of user yeah i was reflecting on that uh in preparation for this interview because i know you ask for kind of close calls or personal experiences Mm. and so i actually was reflecting on my own path through the typology and it was I'd encourage folks to do it. It was quite uh, eye-opening to me. And what the most eye-opening to me was realizing that I myself was an A. Um, in fact, as a snowshoer. And what was so interesting to me about that realization was that up until this point, when p- people would ask me about when I got into the backcountry, I always associated it with when I started skiing. <laughs> and I, I heard that a lot, actually, in my interviews. Um, people would equate taking an avalanche course or needing training or needing knowledge of avalanche hazard with when they started skiing. Um, and so it was just interesting to see that in myself. But when I first moved to Breckenridge, um, I was a bit limited financially, but I was renting a home with just a incredible access to the mountains um, that I didn't want to, I wanted to take advantage of. So I found a pair of used snowshoes and I would hike up into the Alpine a couple days a week without a clue that avalanche hazard existed. Um, and I, I, I was really lucky <laughs> that I got away with that scot-free. Um, and what it took was a family member pointing it out to me. One of my cousins who lived in Breckenridge at the time was like, do you have any idea <laughs> the risks you're exposing yourself to? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, I also found it interesting that I then skipped, I didn't have a type B phase. Um, I really went quickly to the type C stage as I was able to get backcountry ski equipment um, and experience. I had, I was so immersed in the community within Breckenridge. So I was working at the local backcountry ski shop. Um, my dear friends were forecasters for the area, as well as people who had been skiing for decades in the area. And so I was really quick to learn um, the difference between non-avalanche terrain ski options and avalanche terrain options. And I was um, operating knowing that I could kind of take ownership of a tour in non-avalanche terrain, but if I wanted to ski in avalanche terrain, I made sure that I was out with those mentors and people that were operating at a stage where I wasn't yet there. Um, And so I think knowing that experience of mine, I'm really interested in the role of community and mentorship and those types of things and how those help us to progress 
um, or keep us on track with where we should be in our choices in the backcountry. Um, and for me, it was definitely true that I became a type D user when I took more avalanche education. I definitely associate my understanding of uh, differences in snowpack instability with those courses. We actually, we didn't have avalanche problems defined at the time, but it's certainly where that concept came into my realm of understanding and use. And then finally, you know, the, the jump, the time that I can remember consciously operating as a type E was on a ski tour where we experienced a collapse along the skin track and we were planning to ski a line kind of at the margins of a known avalanche path. And I just knew, associated that sign of instability with an inappropriate margin with a persistent slab avalanche problem and called the day, skied back down the skin track. And when I reflect on that, I am aware that that was six years in to my um, path as a backcountry recreationist. And I also recognize that I was all in, you know, I really had designed my life around allowing me to be in the backcountry regularly. And that is not, you know, that's a huge privilege that not everybody has. And so really seeing that that takes so much time and in the environment and um, that not everyone might get there, I think we need to recognize that these stages exist for people, that not everyone's looking to progress to the highest level, and that because it takes so much time to get there, we need to make sure people are served at each stage in this progression. So that was a really fun exercise <laughs> to think about and all the factors that go into each of these stages. Yeah, boy, I really like how you bring up the point of just being patient with the prog with the progression and how it's not going to happen overnight. And and um, I think that's a good reminder for all of us. So, Anne, how has your work as a avalanche forecaster influenced how you think about the user typology? Ooh, yeah, um, certainly. Having to sit in both seats has brought some new perspectives, especially on those difficult forecasting days. There were certainly days last winter where uh, the challenges were so immense, just a ton of uncertainty in the weather or uncertainty in the regional differences uh, for my forecast region and uncertainty in terms of how problems were different across aspects and elevations. And when you're grappling with that much uh, complexity in the forecast, and then also thinking about all of these different user types, it just, sometimes it just makes you want to pull your hair out. And so <laughs> I definitely... Uh, empathize with the forecaster who's listening to this and imagining having to write five different 
forecasts um, on a day like that. But I don't really think that's the direction that that this is going. I think this is prompting more of a conversation about uh, delegating tasks and defining what those tasks are in terms of what other products and programs we have access to, how can we make those connections stronger across our products, um, and just see this system in its entirety working with our audience in its entirety. Um, and I think this challenge is really important and kind of groundbreaking when we zoom out and expand to thinking about risk communication in our world right now because we're we're kind of proposing here that we really think about how we communicate information about hazard to people who are going to make decisions and utilize processes of decision making that are different from ours and we're trying to address this question of how we can reach people who are different and i'm really excited about grappling with that and i think that we have are in a unique position in our industry um, in that if we engage with this challenge there could be a lot of value um, to risk communication as a whole and and how we do this across other risk contexts and that we could be a real leader in how to address difference um, with products You've experienced products from um, avalanche forecast centers throughout North America in the United States and Canada, um, as well as writing avalanche bulletins in Canada for Avalanche Canada. What are some differences that you see between some of the forecast centers in the United States and then the products that are coming out of Avalanche Canada? Yeah, um, one of the key differences between the two is the overall structure and that I think lends itself to most of of the differences that trickle down. So here in Canada, Avalanche Canada acts more as an umbrella organization that issues most of the forecasts for our forecast regions, but also brings in um, a few other agencies that write forecasts. So Parks Canada uh, is responsible for publishing the forecasts for the parks, and they're incorporated into Avalanche Canada's website um, and portal, as well as the forecasts that are written over on the east side of the country with Avalanche Quebec. So we kind of have here a one-stop shop and this overarching structure that's organized under the Avalanche Canada umbrella. Um, however, within the U.S., you know, regions are very spread out and are operating independently um, for the communities or states that they serve. So there's a lot of different scales there and structures 
Um, so you have larger centers that serve entire states like in Colorado, Utah, Washington, but you also have some smaller community-based forecasts like for Crested Butte, for example, or even regional. So like in the Flathead region in Montana or in Central Oregon, for example. And so that lends itself to a greater diversity in structures and just some different challenges as well that I think are, are handled in a brilliant way with how they've divided centers into different types. So type one, two, and three centers. But I think those differences are really interesting to think about uh, the different challenges that they have. And then also this question of where should we keep things consistent across these diverse cases? And where should we allow for creativity? Like what is the effective balance there? And especially when we consider the fact that a lot of our users roam. So folks in Canada are going down to the U.S. to ski and vice versa. Folks in the U.S. might be coming up to Canada to snowmobile or hike or ice climb. And, and so when we think about that cross-pollination, how can we ensure that we have enough that is consistent so that users can continue their practice and get the information they need? but also that we allow enough space to really address the unique contexts that are in play in these different diverse um, recreational zones. So it's a fun challenge to piece apart. And hopefully we can continue to, to think about that. Is there any research that you know of that's, that's uh, diving into the effectiveness of common terminology or symbology within the Avalanche Bulletin and how are users confused by different symbols or terminology for, say, a given avalanche problem? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I'm really excited for the work of my colleague, Katie Fisher, who's currently um, working with the Avalanche Research Program at SFU because she has looked directly at those types of questions like um, the avalanche problem directional rows that shows, displays the aspect and elevation of different avalanche problems. She's looking at how that is used and understood as well as different formats and structures of the terrain and travel advice. Um, so these are some really interesting questions and I'm excited for her results to take shape and see, see what comes from that. Yeah, it's definitely exciting to hear that there's so much research going on about this because, you know, these products are, are really uh, multidimensional products that are serving a wide range of people and, and are vital to the to their risk management process. And it, it's very evident that you all are, are dedicated to the improvement of these products. And so thanks for all the heavy lifting that you've done in the research realm of this. Yeah, that's a great point. There's so much involved. You know, there's just the, the understanding of the 
presentation of the information on the page. There's the comprehension of the concepts that are involved in that information. And then there's also the application and the synthesis of those concepts um, and the application in the real environment. And so all of these things are involved. We're trying, we're trying to pick them apart. But a really interesting finding from Henry's research was, was that in terms of skills, it, it does seem that a lot of users are, are challenged by this application aspect of the information. And so within our research, we found some strong evidence that not only was application challenging for people, but it's also what they were asking for, for help um, in how the bulletin could be improved. And I think this is a really exciting finding was that people wanted feedback on how they were synthesizing the information and applying it to terrain. Um, and that's a skill that they were showing they do need help with. And the research in education is also pointing us towards feedback being really valuable for people's learning. So uh, folks were asking how they did in our surveys or in the application exercises in the interview. They were really curious how they were performing. And there's a lot of literature in the field of education that shows these mini quizzes or these opportunities to interact and test those skills and get feedback are really valuable for helping people's learning, but it's also exactly what's missing from the backcountry environment. Mm. We are operating in a wicked learning environment out there where we don't get feedback. So potentially this idea to incorporate uh, some form of feedback within the bulletin is really exciting. Um, I don't know what it looks like, but a lot of arrows are pushing us in that direction, or a lot of our research findings are pushing us in that direction. And this is where I think it's really exciting. You know, here's some evidence to show how we can help and facilitate the learning for people on the higher end of the spectrum. These are some skills and areas that they could really use um, more assistance with from our products. So, right. Yeah. What a great point about the feedback and how we, you know, I think we can all relate to not getting feedback in the mountains sometimes when we make a certain decision. I, I just watched a, one of the presentations from the VSSW, um, from this fall about the virtual reality. I forget the two fellows names that presented about this, but they were, you know, essentially creating situations and you would wear the virtual reality goggles or whatever. I'm, I'm not a tech guy, so I, I can't explain how that works, but you're actually making decisions in the mountains, travel-based decisions based on information and observations that you're making all from the safety of your living room. I'm not a proponent of um, too much more technology out there, <laughs> but but this seems like a cool way to 
gain some more feedback. Um, just a, a tag on to what you were saying about our our want for feedback. Let me let me just jump in there too because that is a really important point to make here. Is that um, as I mentioned in the beginning, I was taking the first crack at this realm of research and really what the typology and a lot of the research that we're doing at SFU is focusing on this planning stage for recreationists. So what are they taking from the the information we give them in the forecasts in their living rooms and so, or on their phones, wherever they might be referencing it. But the question as to what they're able to do with it and the field is still largely unanswered. And those are really exciting things to think about. And I hope that the research that we're doing gives us a little more of an informed platform to draw from when we start to dig into the actual travel behavior um, that's going on out there. Great. And what does your schedule look like this winter with regard to your research and then your work as an avalanche forecaster? How does that combine? Yeah, so I've begun uh, work on a PhD to continue this research direction with the same program and my supervisor, Pascal Hagley. So we'll hope to continue a lot of these ideas we've laid out today. Um, And I'm going to mix that in with continuing to forecast with Avalanche Canada. So a great opportunity to keep a foot in the applied world as well as the research world. And um, also continuing with my uh, involvement with ARI and their education development and programs as an instructor trainer. So uh, a great time, a great combination of engagements to keep my head spinning <laughs> <laughs> well that certainly sounds like a nice balance and and uh some great some great opportunities there for for learning and growth i'm sure within your professional realm um well it's been great to catch up with you today and thanks for coming on and talking about some of your research and some of your interest and and your background that that certainly ties into much of your research there. Um, It's nice to see the parallels that you've made between your own personal experiences and what you're seeing in the the data set out there. Um, So thanks a lot, Anne. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I encourage anyone who has thoughts or ideas to find me on our research website. It is avalancheresearch.ca and you'll find my email there and I would love to hear from anyone who's interested. Are there any surveys coming up that we should be aware of that that like we could facilitate some more um, data from? Absolutely. Um, we will certainly have more studies that people can participate um, in down the road and I think that is actually something I wanted to bring in to conclude here is that I'm I'm really inspired by the working partnership we have between operations and researchers and uh, the positive engagement that we've received from um, the recreating public. It's been overwhelming, and I'm really excited in the ways that we can 
grow and build that relationship further. So um, you can follow us. We do have a presence on Facebook and we'll share links to our studies there. Um, Of course, our website as well, but we look forward to engaging with the public in more ways in the future. Awesome. Well, thanks so much and hope you have a great rest of your day. Well, a big thanks to all you out there, the listeners, for tuning in and supporting the Avalanche Hour podcast. If you're really enjoying the show, please tell a friend. Go on over to your favorite uh, podcast platform and subscribe to the show. If you want to take it a step further, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. That really helps out. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and you'll be able to find out the latest and greatest episodes that are hitting the airwaves. Music on today's episode was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks for your contribution to the show, Chris. Appreciate you. Of course, our artwork was created by Mike T. To see more of his work or get in touch with him, you can check out his website at www.miket.com. M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Big thanks again to the sponsors of the show. They are MND Safety, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. We couldn't do this without you, and we really appreciate your continued support. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.